0: Today's reading is from Proverbs chapter 30, I'm reading verses 1 to 33. The sayings of Agur, son of Jacker, an inspired utterance. This man's utterance to Ethiel. I am weary, God, but I can prevail. Surely I am only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is the name of his son? Surely you know. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will rebuke you and prove you a liar. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you, and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal, and so dishonor the name of my God. Do not slander a servant to their master, or they will curse you, and you will pay for it. There are those who curse their fathers, and do not bless their mothers. Those who are pure in their own eyes, and yet are not cleansed of their filth. Those whose eyes are ever so haughty, whose glances are so disdainful. Those whose teeth are swords, and whose jaws are set with knives, to devour the poor from the earth, and the needy from among mankind the leech has two daughters give give they cry there are three things that are never satisfied four that never say enough the grave the barren womb land which is never satisfied with water and fire which never says enough the eye that mocks the father and that scorns an aged mother will be pecked out by the ravens of the valley will be eaten by the vultures There are three things that are too amazing for me, four that I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth, and says, I've done nothing wrong. Under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up a servant who becomes king, a godless fool who has plenty to eat, a contemptible woman who gets married, and a servant who displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. Ants are creatures of little strength, yet they store up food in the summer. Hydraxes are creatures of little power, yet they make their home in the crags. Locusts have no king, yet they advance in their ranks. A lizard can be caught with the hand, yet it is found in the king's palace. There are three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately bearing. A lion, mighty among beasts, who retreats before nothing, a strutting rooster, a he-goat, and a king secure against revolt. If you play the fool and exalt yourself, Or if you plan evil, clap your hand over your mouth, for as churning cream produces buzzer, and as twisting the nose produces blood, so stirring up anger produces strife.
1: Well, I hope you've had a chance to download the handout from the Sermon Notes section. It's quite detailed, as in each week, and there's also the Bible passages printed there. You'll see near the top of the handout that there's a copy of the structure diagram of the book of Proverbs that we've been making our way through over this series. Uh, you recall chapters 1 and 31 were the introduction and the conclusion, and then in between were the two main sections, uh, firstly some instruction and then the sayings, and we're in the last of the talks on the sayings. Um, unlike last week where we jumped around thematically, uh, today's talk is going to focus mostly in on the first nine verses of chapter 30. And I presume you felt the change of gear as we got started, so let's dive straight in. You'll see from your handout, point one, the sayings of Agar son of Jacke, an inspired utterance. Well, you'll see the notes there on the handout as to what I want to talk about from this section. Firstly, the content curator's introduction. The first thing to notice is that Agar son of Jacke, the person responsible for these proverbs, he is almost certainly a non-Israelite. And that was a significant in the Old Testament. He wasn't In the Old Testament, he wasn't one of God's people. But we're being told in Proverbs 30, verse 1, that that's no hindrance to God speaking through him. Because the verse goes on to say, his sayings are an inspired utterance. That is, even though Agur is not Solomon, don't downplay or dismiss what he has to say. Theologically, the content curator is reminding us that God rules over all of his creation. That ought to come as no surprise to us. After all, the Old Testament insists that God raises up and deposes rulers. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, Cyrus the Persian is actually called the Lord's anointed or the Lord's Messiah. God even uses a pagan king for his purposes. So, of course, the Lord can use any mouthpiece to speak to his people. Notice also in verse 1 there that Agar's sayings are spoken to Ithiel. Uh, So the sayings of Agar, son of Jaché, an inspired utterance, this man's utterance to Ithiel. Now, we don't actually know who Ithiel was, but it does reinforce a key theme of Proverbs that we've seen throughout this series, namely that wisdom is learned in community. Wisdom is learned in community. Knowledge is there to be shared. Well, the next part of this opening section is Agar's futile quest, uh, verses 1 through 4. It seems that Agar, the non-Israelite, has been on a quest. Pick it up with me halfway through verse 1. Verse 1. I am weary, God, but I can prevail. Surely I am only a brute, not a man. I do not have human understanding. I have not learnt wisdom, nor have I attained to the knowledge of the Holy One. Um. It seems that Agar has been on a quest. Uh, You can see what it is there. Uh, Verse two, admittedly, is a little bit tricky, but verse three is pretty clear. Agar has failed in his quest to find wisdom, to find God. This, of course, was the quest that we have been on since talks one and two, the quest for wisdom. Uh, Chapter four, verse seven in Proverbs says, get wisdom, though it cost you all you have. That's how urgent it is. And apparently, Ego has been on that journey, but he has failed. And in fact, his failure to find God is contrasted uh, with God's boundless infinitude. Uh, All five of those rhetorical questions in verse 4 have the same answer, as we'll see soon enough. Verse 4, Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Whose hands have gathered up the wind? Who has wrapped up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is the name of his son? Surely you know well, the answer we'll see soon enough is the Lord. But up until this point, is there any hope for Agur? Well, point three on your hand up. Then Agur's hope, verses five and six. Despite his futile quest to find God, Agur has not given up hope. Pick it up in verse five, Proverbs chapter thirty, verse five. Every word of God is flawless. He is a shield. To those who take refuge in him. In the historical context, uh, remember top tip number two from a few weeks ago? Uh, always consider the context where you can. The word of God must mean the Old Testament law. So, verse five every word of God is flawless. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, you see one of the applications of verse five in verse six. Verse 6, do not add to his words or he will rebuke you and call you a liar. From Agur now comes a warning, a twofold warning. Firstly, uh, well, never never misrepresent God, uh, particularly in the name of wisdom. If I give a parallel, I get really cranky if I'm slandered, if people attribute things to me which I didn't say. Imagine how much more so will God. So never misrepresent God, but equally, never move beyond God's word in your quest to find him. After all, verse 5, every word of God is flawless. This raises then for us the question, is there any value in the pithy sayings like those recorded in Proverbs? Because so far what Agur has said is that it's the flawless word of God, the Old Testament law, which alone can reveal him. Well, we'll see the answer to that question in just a moment, but before we do, uh, point four there, Aga's twofold prayer. Aga's twofold prayer in verses seven through nine. Now, it's actually quite unusual to find prayers in wisdom literature. So at this point, we're going to pause and just pay a little more attention. Uh, the placement, in fact, of verses seven through nine tells us that prayer is critical for getting wisdom, Because we, in our finiteness, need that holy one to reveal himself to us if we're ever going to find him. What the placement of this prayer says is that Agar's response to his futile quest is not despair, but to turn to prayer, to call out to God. Uh, So what does he pray for? Well, for two things. Pick it up in verse 7. Two things I ask of you, Lord, do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonour the name of my God. Notice the two things that Ego prays for at this point as he reflects on his quest. Firstly, he prays for truth. In the first part of verse 8, he prays for truth. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. There's an obvious connection, I think, with verse 6 and the warning to never be a liar. And this, of course, will be vital for evaluating any worldly wisdom or any human advice. But what's really interesting is that the second prayer that he prays in verses 8 and 9 is a prayer for contentment. A prayer for contentment: Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only—only my, only my. Sorry. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Agape prays a prayer for contentment. Contentment, lest dissatisfaction with our circumstances should lead us away from God. And that's a warning so significant. We'll return to it at the end of the talk. Well, what happened with Agar's prayer? Did God do anything with it? Did God respond? Well, it seems, I think, that God did answer Agar's prayer. And I say that because you might have noticed the transition in verses 1 through 9 in the way in which Agar referred to God. So if you look back at your notes there, in verse 1, he refers to God verse 3 he refers to the holy one but by the time we come to verse 7 Agar's prayer is to the Lord the Lord in capitals which as we've seen is well it's the word that we translate as Jehovah it is the very personal name of God's people for their god Israel in Israel it seems that God has answered this non-Israelite's prayer God has revealed himself even to Agar through his word. And yet, here's the really great surprise of chapter 30. Despite Agar being on this journey to try and find God and to discover him in the word of God, in the Old Testament law, for the rest of chapter 30, verses 10 through 31, Agar is going to say there is another source of wisdom, another source of hope in his quest. And so we come then to point five, Agar's worldly wisdom, verses 10 through 33. Now, this is the rest of the chapter, uh, rest of chapter 30, and it's those second two columns on your handout. Uh, For the sake of time today, I'm just going to skip over these sayings. Um, There are some lovely collections there, though. Uh, There's advice about satisfaction. There's warnings against adultery. There are observations about the world around us. But I'm going to skip over them because instead I want to focus on the bigger issue and what is the title of this talk. What can we learn from worldly wisdom? Because you remember our problem, in verse 5, Agur has insisted that the flawless word of God alone can reveal the God who cannot otherwise be found. That's how he can be our shield and our refuge as we meet him in his word. And in fact, verse 6 solemnly warned us, do not add to these words. But for the rest of chapter 30, Agur serves up a whole stack of proverbs, what we might call worldly wisdom, advice on how you live well in God's world. These pithy sayings, the content curator has even included as an inspired utterance. But why should we listen to them at all? Well, the answer is that, and I've put this there on your handout, the answer is that God has written in two books. God has written in two books, which means we find him in two places. We find God first and foremost in the Bible. That's what you might call wisdom from the word. But we also find God in the created order itself. We find God in the created order itself. You might say that's wisdom from the world, wisdom from the world around us. You see this most clearly, I think, in Psalm chapter nineteen. Sorry, Psalm nineteen. Psalm nineteen, verse seven, printed there on your handout: "The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul." Uh, It's an image they're describing how. God, as you meet him in his word, he refreshes your soul. He's the source of life. But that's not how Psalm 19 began. See, back in verse 1 of Psalm 19, again printed on your handout, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Verse 1 is saying that creation does declare God's glory. And that means the world around us is worthy of our careful and continual examination. Let me explain why I think this is significant. Sometimes I hear Christians say things like, all we need to understand the world, all we need to understand life is the Bible. All we need to understand life is the Bible. To which I want to respond gently but respectfully, I think they're wrong. I think they're wrong because creation reflects the creator, uh, even though creation has been broken by our sin. Creation reflects the creator, even though it's been broken by our sin. That's why it's still worthy of our study and investigation and exploration. To give you a parallel, uh, it's the same as the way in which a biological child bears a resemblance to its parents. In fact, it would be a very great surprise if it did not. And that means we can learn much about how to live a better life from worldly wisdom, even if spoken by pagan unbelievers like Aga. We ought cherish scientific investigation that seeks to explain how the cosmos works. We really should learn from corporate best practices in Christian organisations. And all of us would do well to follow the advice of medical and health professionals and so on. There is much we can learn about how to thrive in our world from the wisdom of those who have studied it. And yet, having made that point, please don't mishear me. Creation has been broken by our sin and so although the heavens do declare the glory of God, our sin has obscured our view. And that brings me then to point two on our handout, the top of the second column, but worldly wisdom is insufficient to save. When we come to the New Testament, uh, which we must do as Christians, we don't just finish with Proverbs, but we come to the New Testament. The key passage here is Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It's printed there on your handout. Let me read out a few verses. Romans 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. You'll say in your handout that I've given you a couple of phrases there. I've talked about general revelation and special revelation. General revelation says that God is seen in his creation. Like Romans 1 verse 20 there. God can be understood from what has been made. Remember that first book. But because we all suppress these truths about God, verse 18... The Apostle Paul says we are without excuse. And that means we will need another, a special revelation of God if we're to have a relationship with him. I hope you can see that this passage is critical. Without passages like these, without this conviction, there would be no reason for evangelism. See, as Christians, we start with the assumption that by default, everyone is lost, everyone has turned away from God, and everyone is going to hell. Thankfully, in God's kindness, he has done something to save us. The Bible is clear that he has revealed himself in Jesus and that salvation for all Is in his name. So, for example, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, again printed on your handout, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul will call Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God. How wonderful. Can I pause for a moment and say that if you're not a believer, well, firstly, thank you for taking the time to watch this service. I hope you've enjoyed getting a glimpse of what our community stands for and what it would be like to be part of it. Can I say to you that if you're not a believer, then what sin means is that Christians will always seem foolish to you at first glance. Christians will always seem foolish to you at first glance. Now, I want to say this is not a new charge against Christianity in the 21st century. You'll see on the little box on the screen behind me, uh, there's a picture there of some graffiti uh, from the first century, from Rome. Uh, The little picture there, um, there is, uh, well, the inscription says, Alexamenos worships his God. Alexamenos worships his God. And Alexamenos is the little spiky-haired dude down on the uh, bottom left worshiping his God, who, of course, is Jesus on a cross. you notice Jesus is depicted there with the head of a donkey or an ass. It is not a new charge against Christianity to see Christ's death as foolishness. But for this reason, apologetics have always been necessary to remove some of the roadblocks to faith, to try and answer the very fair and reasonable questions that unbelievers have. But ultimately, apologetics is always insufficient to save. Because we need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of unbelievers, that we might see the cross of Christ not as some awful tragedy or foolishness, but instead as the most unexpected triumph. If you're trying to work out who this Jesus is, can I invite you to join us at our next Jesus Works course? There'll be one starting in a few weeks' time. This is a course that we run throughout the year to enable those who have questions to come and get answers to try and explore some of the difficult topics around Christianity, but above all, to come and meet Jesus, to see what he is like and why he is worthy of your life. Well, point three then, let me wrap it up at this point, your word. Uh, What all this means, I think, is that the best ordinary advice for these extraordinary times, to use the series title, the best advice actually comes not from Proverbs, It comes from Psalms. And from Psalm 119, Psalm 119, it continues that quest for wisdom theme from Agur. There's a verse printed there for you on your handout. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. There is wisdom to be found in studying God's world. But because salvation alone is found within God's word, why wouldn't you immerse yourself in scripture? Let me give two practical suggestions for how you might immerse yourself in God's word in this week ahead. And again, both are printed there on your handout. The first, to come back to a theme I've hammered on throughout this series, daily devotions. I want to try and highlight the importance of reading scripture by once again remembering the historical context of Proverbs, and in particular of King Solomon, the author of most of the book. We heard back in talk one about how Solomon was said to be wiser than anyone in the whole world, yet still died a fool because wisdom does not mean obedience. I want to contrast Solomon with one of his most famous successors, hundreds of years later, the boy king Josiah. Here's what's said of Josiah in 2 Kings 23, verse 1, on your handout. The king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. Here's what he did He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. Josiah read the whole of the book of the law to the people. Likewise, Ezra in Nehemiah 8, after the Israelites returned from the Babylonian exile, does exactly the same thing. Now, I might be making too much of it, and what I'm about to offer is an argument from silence, which is always a little bit risky. And I should say, I've never seen this argument in any commentary So, you know, be like the Bereans. Go and test me out afterwards. Solomon, we're told, spoke 3,000 wise sayings or proverbs, but there is no record of him ever publicly reading Scripture to the people. No record of him ever publicly reading Scripture to the people. Which makes me wonder if he read it for himself. Because if he had, he might have remembered Deuteronomy 17 And what was expected of a king? By contrast, remember Solomon's greatest son, Jesus. In Matthew 4, verse 4, printed there on your handout, Jesus responds to the devil's temptation by saying, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, in talking about daily devotions, I don't want to induce guilt in you. I just want to say that every Christian person I have ever met thinks it's important to eat. In fact, we spend an awful lot of time planning our meals. Surely feeding on the word of God matters more, not just to sustain us each day, but that we might grow and become mature. That was the prayer of Proverbs 30, verse 8. Do you recall, give me my daily bread. It's a reminder, I think, of another great prayer, the one that we prayed earlier in our service. Give us today our daily bread. That's the reason why I've been issuing my Proverbs chapter a day challenge, and I hope you've been able to take it up. It's not too late to start. In fact, you can start whenever you want. Uh, You'll be up to the mid-20s by now if you have been making your way through it. Please continue after this series. Near the bottom of your handout, you'll see a discussion or reflection question there. What obstacles are preventing you from daily devotions? I'm not asking you so you feel judged or guilty. I'm asking so you might begin the process of forging the character which produces the fruit of the Spirit. Because I know that's what every Christian longs for. After all, it's my most frequent and fervent prayer for myself. Daily devotions, beyond just that, my second and final practical application is about memory verses. I'm always talking about this, I know, but I want to urge you to memorise scripture so that God's word automatically springs to mind when you're stressed, so that what instinctively pops into your head when your circumstances are tough and you're tempted to disown the Lord it's not just those pithy soundbites from the world around us, but the Word of God. You know, those popular sayings in, in our world, they do affect how we interpret the, our situation. If your response is always, she'll be right, well, that's just groundless optimism. Or c'est la vie, well, that's just helpless apathy. Or the power of positive thinking, that makes you think that we can actually sort things out ourselves that we're in control. When instead, what ought to come to mind in times of stress is God's flawless word. To come back to Matthew 4, one last time, did you notice that Jesus doesn't just give a great quote? It's from Deuteronomy 8 verse 3. He says it is written to remind us that it is from Scripture, that Jesus had memorised Scripture. And my point is that if Jesus found memory verses helpful, presumably they'd be of some benefit for us too. What ought we memorise? Well, Proverbs are great, but I reckon the best memory verses are the ones that speak about God's character because his character is unchanging through all our circumstances. And that's the key to making sense of our situation, especially suffering and trials. I talked last week about my prayer diary, and I said that when I pray for others, I pray for conviction before character, before circumstances. What I didn't say was that before I pray for others, first and foremost, I pray memory verses to remind me of what God is like. He has made me before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. His son died to grant me the righteousness which the law could not. His love is so wide and long and high and deep and it surpasses all knowledge and understanding that I'll never be separated from it. Memory verses about God's character. Or if it helps with your memory, learn the memory verses that are put to song. In a moment, we're going to sing from Psalm 103 of a God who is rich in love and slow to anger. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is light to our feet and a guide to our path. Enable us to walk in that way each day. Amen.